As you're being seated, if you'll find your Bible and open it up to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10. The other day, I asked my daughters, who are nine and seven years of age, I said, uh, what parts of the story do you find in every movie that you watch? And they finally figured out exactly what I was asking. And so I said, well, every movie we watch, it always has really good music. And they started singing, let it go, let it go, you know, at that time. And I said, well, what else do you have? And they said, well, there's always a pretty princess. I said, okay, uh, anything else? They said, well, there's a hero, someone that's the hero of the story. And then uh, I think McKenna said, there's always a villain. If there's not a villain, it's just a bad movie, is what she said. And then they said, well, there's a problem. There's always some type of problem that happens. And then there's usually fighting. So what kind of fighting? They said, usually punching and kicking in the fighting. And then uh, they said, at the end of the movie, the, they're usually happy. And, and the fighting ends at that point. And then Karis said, yeah, usually McKenna is barfing because they start kissing at the end of the movie. And she doesn't like that at this point in life. And we don't want to change that at this point in life. You know, there's nothing more foundational to the human story than love. We frame our first breaths with love. Baby's born, mom and dad take out the pictures, start doing the selfies, immediately uh, post it to Facebook, and you say something like, baby's here, we are so in love, she is absolutely perfect. We begin life as a story of love, and love is a major celebration in every art form that we have. It's celebrated in books, movies, music. Every art form that we have celebrates and often revolves around this idea of love. So, with all the time that we spend investing ourselves in love, with all the money that we spend talking about love, you would think that we as a society would be really good at loving people, right? But then there's the reality, we're not really very good at it. And we have fights and conflicts. A lot of us carry with us long-term scars. Many of us have grown, in, grown up in or are navigating the challenges of a broken family. There are addictions that people possess that testify to our struggles with love. What is the greatest enemy of love? What do you think the greatest enemy of love is? I think the greatest enemy of love, obviously you could say the devil, uh, but I think the greatest enemy of love is selfishness. And a close second to it is pride. When we get to verse 21 of Luke chapter 10, Jesus is rejoicing to the Father in the Holy Spirit. We have a moment where you see the Trinity together there early on in verse 21 and 22. And we see that Jesus is rejoicing in the loving relationship that the Father and Son and Spirit have, how they are three, yet at the same time they are one. And yet he is also frustrated by the fact that those who were prideful, those who were supposed to be the smartest among them, could not see the reality of who Jesus is and the ministry that was going on right in front of them. In fact, it was often the simple person, the one that was not puffed up in pride, that was able to see what Jesus was doing and rejoice in it. 
And so you see that the synergy of the Trinity reveals a God of love. And when we are willing to humble ourselves and submit to the God of love and his authority, then like Jesus, we begin to understand and display love ourselves. The reverse is true as well. When you embrace selfishness and pride, you experience the dark side of love. And so in verse 25, an expert in the law stands up to test Jesus. So a couple things about this man. Number one, he's an expert in the law. That means he knows his Bible. He knows the Bible backwards and forwards. Number two, he has an insincere motive. He wasn't really coming to Jesus with his heart open. He was coming to Jesus with an agenda. And so he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit life? What is written in the law? Jesus asked him. How do you read it? He answered. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. So the man answers Jesus that from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19, he basically says that if you want to have eternal life, you need to learn to love the Lord your God with all of your being, and that your love for God will overflow so that you are also loving your neighbor and the world around you. Jesus says, you've answered correctly, he told them. Do this and you will live. Now, what would be the appropriate response at this point? The appropriate response would be for the teacher of the law to ask Jesus, well, how? How do I love God? How do I love others in this way? But instead, look at verse 29. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, here's the deal. The religious leaders and the teachers of the law had reframed love into something else. They had reframed love into something that was performance-based. If you behave correctly, if you follow our rules, if you do what you're supposed to do, then we'll love you. They also had a very isolated view of love. If you're one of us, If you talk like us, if you vote like us, if you look like us, then we'll love you. And so they had reframed love into something that it is not. Why is marriage so hard for so many? Why is it so hard sometimes to get along with our family, get along with our children, get along with our parents? our brothers and sisters? Why is it that sometimes many will dread Christmas get-togethers or Thanksgiving because the relationships within the family are so difficult? Why does something so simple and so foundational to the human experience as love become so difficult? I think our default within our sin nature is to reframe love into something that it is not. For example, in the Bible, God is love. And so God defines for us and displays for us what love looks like. As Christians, we are to worship God. 
We bow before God in worship. And so as Christians, God is the one that defines love for us. God is love, yes. And God is the one that defines for us what love is to look like, what love is to be. Our culture, though, reframes this. They turn the sentence around and will say, love is God. And so to find true love, you have to first of all define what it is that you love. And then if you look at the way that culture lives, whatever you love becomes what you worship. It's a reframing of love. In the Bible, love is selfless. I give of myself and I even surrender some of my rights in order to meet the truest needs of another individual. Now, I'm not talking about enabling someone. I'm talking about doing whatever you have to do in order to meet the truest needs of another individual. Because in a loving relationship, I'm willing to put the other person above me to make them priority. But in our culture, love is reframed rather than being selfless Love is selfish. We're taught you first must love yourself. Until you love yourself, you can't really be loving is what our culture teaches. And then in culture, we're taught that you need to find somebody who will love you and accept you just the way you are. A reframing of love. In the Bible, love changes you. In the Bible, Whenever you experience God's love, and we experience God's love in grace, it's not performance love, it's grace-driven love, but whenever you experience God's love in grace, that experience of God's love will motivate you and drive you towards growth and obedience. And growth and obedience always requires within us change. On several different occasions, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. You see, Jesus framed love this way, that whenever we have a genuine love for God, it's going to change us the way that we act, the way that we see the world around us. But culture defines love or reframes love as love will never change me. Instead of two people coming together and and becoming one, culture frames love this way, that you have two people who are living their individual lives, and they are cheering one another on towards earthly success. In the Bible, human sexuality is an expression of marriage. You have a man and you have a woman. You have a gender complement. It goes all the way back to the first chapter of the Bible, created by God in his image, created with gender, male and female. And they come together in a lifetime covenant. And they express their love towards one another in a physical way through the one natural act capable of creating life. And then raise their children within the love of a family, and in an ideal situation, the children will receive the complement of love that comes both from having a loving father 
and a loving mother as well. The sexual ethic of Christianity is not prudish and one that relegates that physical act towards something that is ungodly. Instead, it is actually celebrated within Scripture, so much so that we have an entire book that is devoted to its beauty. It is something that is beautiful. It is something that comes from God. But it is also something that has been defined by God so that it might have meaning and power. Culture, though, reframes sexuality. Rather than it being an expression of marriage, it is an expression of myself. Or perhaps just an insatiable appetite that has to be satisfied. And so I come together with whomever I want to express myself physically. And in the process, I often devalue the one natural act capable of creating life. And in devaluing that life, I also make a statement about what I think about the value of life. Jesus then tells a parable to illustrate what is the true meaning of love. What does it look like? Look with me to verse 30. Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. And they stripped him, beat him up, and fled leaving him half dead. Now, don't miss the first part. Jesus took up the question. So what is the parable of the Good Samaritan in reference to? It is in reference to who is my neighbor. What is the question of who is my neighbor in reference to? It is in reference to how do we love? What does it mean to love? So you have this man who is going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It's about a 3,000-foot elevation descent over 17 miles. To make that kind of elevation descent, the road is going to be winding, and so this particular path was known for robbers. There was a lot of crime that took place on this road, and so the scene that is displayed here is not uncommon. A man was robbed, he was stripped, he was beaten up, and he was left in the ditch half dead. Well, in verse 31, a priest happened to be going down that road, And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So two people come across this man lying in the ditch. The first is a priest. Now the priest was a clergyman. He was an individual that led worship. He was someone in that society is similar to the role that I play within Our church, he was supposed to be a holy man, a caring man, but the priest was also supposed to be clean. He was supposed to be ceremonially ceremonially cleaned, and so as he goes from Jerusalem to Jericho, probably to perform priestly duties, and he comes across this man, he finds himself with a problem. If he touches this man and helps this man who is bleeding, it will require that he return to Jerusalem. He will have to once again go through the washing ceremonies and he might be delayed in his trip for two weeks. 
He had a sanitized love that kept him from getting his hands dirty and helping an individual who was hurting. Then we also have the Levite. The Levite was an assistant to the priest. The Levite often did a lot of the dirty work in the temple and in the synagogue. Whenever you would bring a sacrifice to to give to God, it was the Levite who would take it from you. The Levite was consumed with rules. Everybody had to follow the rules. He was the temple hall monitor, if you will. He had a perfectionist view of love. You know, within our society, a lot of our love stories, if you think about it, are very sanitized. The princess meets the prince. The princess is beautiful. The prince is handsome. They always can sing on key. And then they face some type of struggle. And then with the help of five-hour energy drink, because every cartoon needs a sponsor, uh, with the help of Red Bull or whatever it is, they overcome the struggle, and then they live happily ever after. If you think about it, it's a very sanitized picture of what love is supposed to be about. Our love within our, our love stories are also very perfectionist. The children are always polite. Hello, Father. Welcome home from your labor today. The house is always clean. There's always lots of money. They can eat pizza and chocolate and never gain a pound. It's a very perfectionist idea of love. But you know, in real love, one day you realize... Look at that prince over there, watching the Rangers game, 12th inning, 0-0, zero to zero. going to be tired at work tomorrow, pork rinds all over his belly. My prince is a slob. And then you look at your princess, and you think to yourself, my princess is kind of moody. And, and you begin to realize that no, no life has really ever lived happily ever after. One day you begin to look around your house and you're like, this place is a mess. Somebody needs to clean this. Oh yeah, it's me. Uh, and, you, and you think about all the different things that, that people want you to buy. And if you don't buy this, you're not a good parent, right? But if you buy every single thing that they want you to buy... You're not going to have any money for food. And so you can never live up to everybody's expectations. And then you begin looking at yourself and you're like, you know, there's more of me to love than there used to be. My love is not sanitized. My love is not perfect. Uh, Congratulations. You're in what we call a relationship. Did you know that this sanitized, perfectionist love, some sociologists have done some studies here, and they estimate that people can generally hang on to that sanitized, perfect, dating kind of fall, head over heels in love feeling for about two years. For about two years. But then at some point, love gets real. At some point, you become two human beings that are really journeying through life together, and you're going to have ups and downs that are going to require you to stick with it through difficult times. 
But sadly, when love gets real, that's when many people cross the street. That's when many people look at it and say, nah, I don't think so. Go to the other side of the street and just keep on going. Well, in verse 33, uh, Jesus continues, But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. Now, when Jesus said the Samaritan, the audience probably gasped, okay? So let's try it, all right? Whenever I say that word, you guys gasp. But a Samaritan... There you go. On his journey, someone just woke up like, what happened there? But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. The Samaritan was considered an outcast. The Samaritan would never be the prince. He would never be the hero of the story. You see, to the Jewish people, the neighbors were the people that were like them, that lived nearby, that had the same belief system, that spoke the same language. The Samaritans were not considered to be our neighbor. We had to love the people that lived real close to us that were like us, but we didn't have to love the Samaritan because he was different ethnically, he had a different language, he had a different faith. The whole parable revolves around who is my neighbor? So the Samaritan, in verse 34, went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine, and then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I'll reimburse you whatever you spend. You see, the Samaritan in the story teaches us what true love is all about. Number one, he teaches us that love doesn't run when things get tough. You see, strong feelings for one another, strong attraction towards one another might bring you into a committed, loving relationship. But for you to remain in that relationship you're going to have to have commitment. Commitment is what keeps you in the relationship. Because there's going to be times where love puts you in situations where it gets sloppy, where it gets hard, where the kids are driving you crazy, where there's a part of you that would just like to run. But true love doesn't run when things get tough. Secondly, true love is selfless rather than selfish. This man was willing to interrupt his trip. He, he was probably on a journey to some place. He probably had people that were expecting him. He probably had planned for this trip. And yet he was willing to have his plans interrupted because there was a hurting man right in front of him. And so his love was selfless. He gave of himself. He cared about the other person. Thirdly, his love was giving. He gave his energy to the situation. He gave his money to the situation. Took the man to the innkeeper, said, here's some money for his lodging. Here's some money for his needs. And if this is not enough, I will pay the difference. Do you think he could afford it? Probably not. 
but he gave anyway. He gave his time, and he did all of this because he was being loving towards someone, probably someone he didn't even know. Well, then Jesus asked the man, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And so the teacher of the law responded, the one who showed mercy to him. And then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Go and do the same. Let the Samaritan's actions, let the Samaritan's love be a model for how you love. Now, as you look at this parable, which character do you place yourself, which character do you relate with the most? Who are you within the parable? Are you Jesus? Well, if that's where you see yourself, then maybe we need to talk a little bit about pride and (laughs) humility and things like that. Are you uh, the teacher of the law? who is inquisitive? Are you the priest who looks at the situation or the Levite who looks at the situation and says, hmm, that's rough. I better walk to the other side. Are you the good Samaritan who helps? Or are you the man in the ditch? The answer is that spiritually... We're all the man in the ditch. Jesus is the hero of the story. Jesus is the one who the priest and the Levites. Jesus is the one who those that consider themselves to be intellectual and those that consider themselves to understand things despised. He was rejected by the great ones of his time. Yet he was also the one that was willing to extend love to the lost and the lonely. And Jesus refused to run from us even whenever we were in our sin. Instead, he came to us. And it's Jesus that demonstrated the greatest act of selflessness when he was willing to lay down his life on the cross for you and for me. It was Jesus who was willing to give all that he had to pull me out of the ditch, to heal me of my sins, to restore me on the paths of righteousness. God, the God of love, has shown mercy upon me. And then he calls me to go and do the same. You see, here's the quiet little secret of love. To feel loved, you have to give love. And you have to come to grips with the fact that the love that the Bible teaches often differs greatly from the love that culture displays. I desire for you to experience true love in your life but for you to experience true love in your life you have to fall in love with God not culture you have to understand that you worship a God who is love and that that God defines and displays what love is all about
And the secret of love is to give. The secret of love is to go beyond yourself and to care about the truest needs of another human being. And when you let go of selfishness and you grab a hold of selflessness, when you start genuinely caring about how can I best meet the needs of my loved one, that's whenever you start feeling love yourself. Now, I know that that seems almost counterintuitive. Yet it's what God teaches. That we care about the other one. We give of ourself. And we discover that the joy of love is found in giving. It's a deep, deep joy. Not the they lived happily ever after kind of joy. The key word to that sentence, they lived happily ever after, is happily. Because happily is based on happenings. You see, if your life is driven by happenings, you're going to be happy when things are going well. And you're going to be miserable when things are going badly. You're going to feel love towards someone whenever everything that is happening is good. And you're going to want to run to the other side of the street when everything is bad. There's a difference between happiness and joy. Joy in Scripture is always anchored to purpose, divine purpose. And joy exists when things that are happening around you are good and when things that are happening around you are bad. Because your joy is anchored to your faith and your faith is anchored to your hope and your hope is anchored to your love. And you display a love that goes beyond your circumstances, a love that goes beyond yourself, a love that connects your life to another person's life and truly desires to meet them at their point of need. The joy of love is found in giving. And so I pray. I pray for marriages that might be in conflict. I pray for relationships between you and your children. Relationships between you and your parents. Relationships between you and your neighbor, your co-workers, your extended family. Relationships within our church. That we might truly display a godly love. And that we will experience the deep, deep joy of true love. Because it is foundational to our being and a part of what God designed you for. Would you be so kind as to bow your heads as the musicians come? Father, we bow our heads before you. Many are sitting as families today. Couples sitting next to one another. Others that might be going through the journey of life. Seeking answers. Some that might feel very lonely today. That are longing for someone to be loving. Father, since the moment we've born, we were born, we've needed true love. 
And Lord, sometimes in the journey of life, we reframe it into something that it's not. But we're reminded today that you are a God of love. And I pray that we might be worshipers who love you with the totality of our being. And that as we worship you, you will create within us a love that overflows the boundaries of ourselves. A love that frees us to be loving towards others. To care about people and their truest needs. A love that allows us to be inconvenienced. A love that allows us to help people grow. That carries us on into commitment. And Father, I want to especially pray today for those that find themselves in conflict. I pray for healing in marriages. I pray, Father, for healing in relationships between parents and children. Pray, Father, for strain that might take place in our relationships with our extended family. Father, perhaps we come before you today and we harbor attitudes towards those that live in our neighborhood and live in our communities who do not look like us and do not speak like us, maybe do not even believe like we do. Help us, Father, not to be cynical, calloused, selfish, prideful people. Help us not to hide within our thoughts and to become haughty of spirit. Help us, Lord, to be humble, sincere, compassionate people that love you, love our one another's, and love others. It's in Jesus' name we pray and worship. Amen.